Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. for today's teaching is from Mark chapter 12 verses 13 through 27. And they sent him to and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, "Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not?" But, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are his, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him and said that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife, and le but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the women also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of God to us. Always super encouraging words from Jesus. You are quite wrong. Uh, hey, good morning. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, if we've not had the chance to meet yet, it's, it's uh, really good to have you today. I'd love the chance to meet you after the service. Uh, one of the things that we're fighting for as a church is to not be culturally relevant. Like that's just not, you know, if you mark out the things that matter to us, being culturally relevant and cool does not make the list at all. And that's probably super obvious just wa walking into this building. But uh, the thing that we're really after is gospel resilience. How do you take people over time and form them into the way of Jesus so that we can be more fully uh, formed around what is true and what is beautiful and what is God's vision for life in this world as his followers? And so with that, one of the things that we've been working on as a team uh, that I wanted to kind of announce to you is a leadership development course that's going to be starting in March and running all the way until May. And with this, you know, we've tried to initially invite some of our key leaders, our community group leaders, and members that are serving in high-capacity areas in our church. 
But beyond that, what we're realizing is we actually have 90 spots. Someone in our church generously gave $10,000 for us to lower the cost of this course and make it accessible for, for each person to jump in at 75 bucks. And it's going to kick off with a retreat March 4th and 5th out at St. Crispin's, about an hour away from here. We're going to have some extended time of prayer and worship together and time to kind of center ourselves around our spirit-filled distinctive together as a church do some training together, and then we're going to have three large gatherings, one in March, one in April, and one in May, Uh, and and those three gatherings are going to just be formative in nature. We'll have times throughout this process where you'll break up into smaller cohorts of eight or nine people, and so I just want to let you know, there's not a ton of spots available for this. It is first come, first serve, but if this sounds interesting to you, I know that that word leadership is often overused in church context. Really what we're talking about is spiritual formation. We're talking about discipleship. Uh, We're going to be reading some stuff together about 50 pages a week. So for some of you, that's like an overwhelming amount. For others of you, that's no problem. We're going to read J.I. Packer's Concise Theology together uh, to do some theological work. We're going to read a book by Pete Scazzaro on emotionally healthy leadership, kind of getting into some uh, spiritual emotional health Uh, We're going to have you choose between a book on anger or anxiety, depending on which one you struggle with the most. That was hard for me because I'm like, both are things I struggle with. Uh, And and then we're going to have you read a book that addresses some of the cultural questions that are being asked in our moment, just to kind of help you as you're interacting with friends and neighbors and even the the doubts and the questions that you yourself have. So this is going to be really formative. I'm most excited about this Uh, for going into this year. And so I just want to open it up. So you can go to south.frontlinechurch.com slash LDC to apply. You need to do this no later than February 13th. That's like the the drop dead date to register. And like I said, there's not a ton of spots. It's first come, first serve. uh, And and there's no guarantee. Once those fill up, they're filled. But does does that sound exciting to anybody? Yeah, awesome. Okay, so hopefully you'll consider. And uh, man, I'm so grateful that somebody in our church would give $10,000 for us to be able to do this at a way cheaper cost. So let me take a second and pray for us. Oh, by the way, let me say, you can go back to the lobby on your way out, and there's a table, and uh, Pastor Aaron Addison will be there. He'll have a brief packet that has more details, uh, dates, all of that included, so that you can register there. There's a QR code and all of that. All right, let me take a second and pray for us. Father, thank you for... Mark 12, thank you for all that you are unpacking for us in this text. And I just, I just feel my inadequacy in this moment to teach. There's some things in scripture that are hard to teach, and there are other things that are really hard to teach. And this one's really hard to teach. It's really hard to obey. It's really hard to sit under. And I'm praying that you would shape us today out of your love and out of your grace and out of your mercy. I just specifically feel burdened for the people in the room that feel like they don't yet have a home. They don't yet have friends. They don't yet feel like they belong. So whoever those people are, I pray that you would meet them with your mercy today. Meet them with your compassion. Bring them in as we sit under your word. Form us by your truth and through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite parts of my job is getting to preach. I love getting to preach. It's like a, a wrestle each week with the text, but it's really fun for me. And any preacher will tell you, if you ask them, uh, which I don't know why you would, but any preacher would tell you that one of the most challenging things about preaching, actually, and maybe one of the more important things, is having an intro that captures people. 
there, there's something to be said about having an intro or a story or an illustration or something, a photo or something to make you want to put your phone down and give you a demand to listen, to pull you in. And so that's what I try to do from each week. I try to think through the text and think through the, is there something happening culturally or a photo or an illustration that we could use to, to kind of create that demand to listen? And some of you are like, why are you telling us about preaching intros? Well, here's why. Because I didn't work on an intro at all today. Because this text does not need one. Jesus is talking about politics today. Jesus is talking about his vision of political engagement in our world. And if that doesn't immediately create some curiosity in your heart, or maybe tension in your heart, then I just got, I've got nothing for you. There's nothing I could say to make you want to listen. This is something that weighs heavily on the minds and hearts of virtually everybody in our culture. In the 1970s, an author and missiologist and theologian by the name of Leslie Newbigin, he predicted that as the West became more secular, that politics would become the new religion of the day. Sounds like he didn't know what he was talking about at all. No, we've seen this as a culture that actually as we become more secular in the West, that politics have in a sense been embedded with a level of uh, allegiance and a level of depth and a level of religion almost where we're finding like ultimate identity in a political party or ultimate security and hope in this or that candidate winning out at the end of the day. And here's what's really crazy. If you just kind of do a scan of the political landscape in our world, no matter what position you find yourself in, right or left or somewhere in the middle, it doesn't really matter. I think that you could make the case that the political landscape is a bit of a nightmare right now. Well, let me just give you a few things to consider. In our lifetime, we have witnessed the election of the first African-American president in our history, followed by the election of Donald Trump. Now, as an observer, it doesn't matter where you land, that's a big political swing in just four years, isn't it? We've witnessed the rise of trans rights, at the exact same time as the rise of the alt-right. It's a big difference. In 2020, we saw former Vice President Mike Pence at the Republican National Convention quote a section from Hebrews 12, which is a passage in Scripture, but when it got to the, the, the word Jesus, the name Jesus, he replaced Jesus with the phrase old glory while staring up at the American flag. Likewise, in 2020, we heard President Biden, a very outspoken Catholic, also be very outspokenly pro-choice. In 2020, we heard John MacArthur, who is a a well-known evangelical pastor in California, say that, quote, any real true believer will vote for Donald Trump, end quote, while simultaneously having several prominent evangelicals, people like Richard Foster, John Perkins, Billy Graham's granddaughter, and others, urging pro-life Christians to vote for Biden Because, quote, his policies are more consistent with the biblically shaped ethic of life. On the political right, you have Christians who have historically touted the importance of presidents and politicians owning and having strong moral character and actually decrying President Bill Clinton for his moral failure. Do you remember that? Only then to majorly backpedal on that point and that entire emphasis when someone from their own party was elected who is more than morally questionable. On the political left, you have currently an emphasis on social justice, which is 
rightly attractive to people in the Christian tradition, especially among younger people who kind of feel like the church has failed to take seriously some of the commands of Jesus around caring for and doing justice in our world. But the problem is that what's often taken up as this phrase, social justice, is just one of the many distorted forms of justice that's more marked by the ideologies and philosophies of our world than what the Bible actually defines true biblical justice is. In other words, we're running after something called justice, but we're working off of different definitions that may or may not be what Scripture really teaches. John Tyson, in his book, A Creative Minority, he says this, the recent political cycle has shattered the lens through which the American church has looked at politics through much of our lifetimes. We know biblically that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, and we know that he cares about the kind of world that we're creating, but those theological principles seem largely disconnected from the realities we face in an increasingly post-Christian culture. Now listen to this. How should the church engage our culture? Many talk about becoming more missional. Others talk about taking our culture back. But it has been my experience that the typical Christian, rather than feeling fired up or threatened by these ideological campaigns, simply feels sad, confused, and overwhelmed. Sad, confused, and overwhelmed. I think that's where many of you and and myself often find ourselves when we think about this political world and how to engage it as followers of Jesus. So here's the question that we're looking at today in Mark 12. How should Christians talk about and think about and engage politics and the government? Or maybe a better question, should we at all? Or should we just like silo off and just try to like be faithful Christians and just let the world do what the world wants to do? How should we and should we at all? And this is why something that Jesus says in Mark 12 is so significant. It's actually shaped the entire way that the early church saw themselves in the world in the first century and has something really, really helpful for us today. So there's a lot happening in the text that we read earlier, and I want to kind of bring you into it by having you think about three things. Think about the context, think about the tax, and think about the tension. The context, the tax, and the tension. Let's start with the context. Where do we find ourselves in the story? Well, we're in the part of Mark's gospel account, his narrative of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus is in his very last week. It's Holy Week. And we saw that on Sunday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. On Monday, he enters into the temple, and he began to cleanse the temple. He's flipping over tables. He's driving out the money changers. And then on Tuesday, which is where we are in the story, Tuesday, he walks back into the temple, but this time, the religious leaders are pretty infuriated with him. Why are you coming into the temple disrupting things? Why are you flipping over tables? Why are you driving out the money changers? Who gave you the authority to do that? And so we saw this first confrontation last Sunday with the the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, basically attacking Jesus, confronting Jesus about where he gets his authority. And that confrontation did not end well for the religious leaders. Jesus wisely, brilliantly answers their question and reveals the brokenness of their own heart, that they're actually less interested in the truth and more interested in being right and maintaining power. And so it's still Tuesday in our story, and they're going to send another wave of confrontations to Jesus, two more waves of confrontations that we're going to see in our text today. So with that in mind, let's jump in. Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him, 
they, meaning probably the Sanhedrin, we're not for sure, but we would assume they is the Sanhedrin, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, who are these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians? We know a lot more about the Pharisees often than we do the Herodians, but uh, let's just suffice it to say that this is an unlikely pairing of people. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians did not hang out together. In fact, they didn't like each other. They actually treated one another with animosity and considered the other the enemy. The Pharisees were very nationalistic, religiously conservative, committed to the nation of Israel, and as a result, they hated the Roman Empire. They felt like the Roman Empire was oppressive and wrong and should be opposed at every turn. So they actually hated Roman culture and hated the Roman Empire, deeply committed to the nation state of Israel. The Herodians, on the other hand, were really religiously liberal. And they were only interested in compromising and synchronizing with Roman culture so that they would not themselves lose a seat at the table. So the Herodians were just kind of blanket state going along with anything that Rome would do and got in bed with Roman culture to such a degree that they were actually getting rich as Rome was getting rich as well. They were receiving power as Rome was seeing them as their friends. So here you have the the Pharisees that are committed to Israel and hate Rome, and then you've got the Herodians that are committed to Rome so much so that they'll, they'll get in bed with them and kind of bend their own belief systems just to not lose power. And yet these two groups are meeting together to attack Jesus. It's kind of like the the enemy of my enemy is my friend idea. That's what's happening here. And this would, in our modern context, sort of be like Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump hanging out for pizza on Friday night. Like, that is so weird. I would not think that y'all would hang out. Well, that's what's happening here with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Why? Why are they doing that? Well, it said, because they want to trap Jesus in his talk. So how are they going to do it? Well, look at verse 14. And they came to him and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Pause there. That is hilarious irony, isn't it? They actually don't believe that to be true. And yet that's the truest thing that they've spoken all day. Hey, we actually believe that you don't really care about people and their appearance and you just treat everybody the same and you just speak the truth and whatever the truth is, that's what you say. They're about to learn that truth in a very painful way in just a moment. Now notice the question, and this is the key. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So let's talk about the tax. In 6 AD, the, uh, Rome, as they invaded Israel, they basically instituted a census tax. And a census tax was basically any adult Jewish male had to pay what was the equivalent of the average day's wage, one day's wage, to Rome, just as being able to live inside of the Roman Empire uh, as a Jewish person. So this was a tax that was instituted in 6 AD, and, and, and the, there was a special coin that was minted specifically for this tax that basically amounted to an average day's ways, day's ways, 
day's wage. Sorry, third time's the charm on that deal. And, and so this, this coin is called a denarius. Here's a photo of it. Uh, on the front is a picture of Tiberius, who was the Caesar or the, the ruling em- emperor of Rome at the time. And around the edge, if you see the, the lettering around the edge, it, it reads this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Now, you know from history class, the word Augustus isn't a name, it's a title. Augustus means majestic or majesty. So literally on the front, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the majestic God, right? Which is super offensive to Jewish people. And then on the back, it's a picture of Tiberius's mom. And on the, the surrounding edge, the lettering reads, high priest. Again, really offensive to Jewish people that actually had high priests. So, so this coin is hated by most of the Jewish people. The Pharisees and the people that they represent hate this coin because this coin represents Rome oppression. This coin represents the fact that we should be the freed people of God, but we're still in bondage. We're still in slavery. And Rome is a cruel oppressor. And I'm actually having to pay money to Rome to continue to oppress me and oppress my family. This is an offensive coin at every level. In fact, many Jews wouldn't even touch the coin. They would pay the tax, but with their own Jewish currency, they would not even touch this coin. They hated it that much. Had a graven image on it, which as a Jewish person you were already against. Had the face of your oppressor on it, which was not fun to look at. It had pagan ideology at every level. It was funding your enemy. I mean, this is everything about this coin is hated. This would be like a modern day equivalent of a Jewish person seeing a swastika symbol and that kind of internal rage and, and, and being overwhelmed by that image. This is sort of like that for them. Seeing the coin brings back these memories of pain and oppression and their lack of freedom. So here's the tension, friends. Think about this. Imagine the situation that Jesus finds himself in. He's, curr- he's currently being approached by two different religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who both have different views of this coin. The Herodians are fine with it. The Pharisees are not. And they're asking Jesus, hey, not what do you think about it, but is it even lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And remember, it's Passover week. What was Passover for the Jewish people? Passover was the celebration annually that when they were slaves in Egypt under cruel oppression, what did God do? He delivered them and he brought them into freedom from their bondage. And here they are, Passover week, and then getting approached, Jesus is getting approached about this coin and they're saying, hey, we should be the freed people of God, but Rome is the new Egypt. They're oppressing us. What are your thoughts on this coin? Is, is it even lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? This is an impossible question for Jesus to answer. It's sort of like the question, uh, are you still beating your wife? It's like, how do you answer that question? There's no like, good way to answer. This is a, a lose-lose question for Jesus. If Jesus supports the tax, he's going to be written off as the Messiah by the Pharisees. They're going to say, what Messiah are you? If you're here to deliver your people and you support the tax, that doesn't make any sense. We're going to write you off as the Messiah. But if he opposes the tax, then he's going to be handed over to the Roman authorities as a revolutionary by the Herodians. The tension is Jesus is either going to lose his life or lose his momentum. What do you do? How does he answer this impossible question? We'll look at verse 15. With all that backstory, look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, 
he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. By the way, isn't it funny that Jesus doesn't even have a denarius on him? He's like coinless. And he's like, does anybody have one of these hated coins? I'm like, oh yeah, I happen to have one right here. You know? So he, he's actually like showing their implicit involvement in this even by asking for the coin in the first place. Now look at this. This is brilliant. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is an absolute mic drop moment for Jesus. Do you see what he's doing here? Jesus says, hey, bring me a denarius. They bring it to him. Hey, whose face is on this coin? Caesar's face. Oh, so this belongs to Caesar? It's got his face on it. If this coin belongs to Caesar, then give it back to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. It seems like it's his anyway because it's got his face and his image and his inscription on it. But did you notice the word that Jesus used? By using the word likeness or image, Jesus is doing something so much more profound than saying give some coin to Caesar. He's actually pointing us back to what? Genesis chapter 1, where we read, Then God said, Let us make man or humanity in our image after our likeness. Friends, here's the point. This is brilliant from Jesus. It's almost like he's the son of God or something. He says, Yeah, the coin belongs to Caesar, so give it back to him. But you belong to God, so give all of you to him as well. He has his image on the coin, so give it back to him. But you are stamped with the image of God. You belong to him, and all that you have is his. So what can we learn from this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians? Well, just three hopefully quick things that I want to give you. This, the grid that I want to give you comes from John Tyson, so I want to give credit where credit is due. He's done a, a lecture on this that was really formative for me. So in light of that, three things. Here's the first one. Followers of Jesus should recognize and obey the government. Followers of Jesus should recognize and obey government. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. By using that phrase and saying that statement, Jesus is actually acknowledging the legitimacy of all human government. Now, this is a big deal, friends, because there's actually a group of people uh, that started out as Pharisees at the time that were so opposed to this tax when it was released that they, they, they rose up in revolt against Rome. There's a guy by the name of Judas of Galilee. And Judas of Galilee, when this tax was instituted in 6 AD, led a revolt and basically uh, brought about what eventually became known as the Zealots. The Zealots were people that hated Rome and they felt like they had a moral obligation to oppose Rome at every turn. Rome is evil. Rome is tyrannical. Rome is corrupt and broken as a government. We should have nothing to do with Rome. We are the people of God. We should oppose Rome at every turn. In fact, some of those zealots, remember Jesus had one of them as a disciple, Simon the Zealot. Some of those zealots went on to become what was known as the Sicarii or the dagger men. And they would carry these daggers and they would slip into crowds and they would find Roman soldiers and secretly slit their throats and then come back into the crowd or find Jewish sympathizers to Rome and kill them too. 
to one of these guys as Jesus' disciples, this was so ingrained in the Pharisaical tradition, so ingrained in the people of Israel, that they thought they had a moral obligation to actually oppose Rome. And yet what Jesus says here is, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And this flies in the face of what so many people in Jesus' day thought about how to engage the Roman government. It actually shaped what Paul goes on to say in Romans 13. Let me read it to you. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except for God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Did you hear how many times he talked about the government being instituted by God as actually a hand for God to bring justice and good into the world? This is a big deal. Again, 1 Peter, writing to the early church who is suffering under who? The Roman Empire, getting persecuted, getting killed, getting wrongfully arrested. Peter writes these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake, not because it's a good government, but for the Lord's sake to who? Every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It is right and good for Christians to obey the government and to go a step further, to actually be healthily involved in the government. Government was instituted by God for justice so that literally people would get what they deserve both for good and for bad. It was given by God to bring order out of chaos, to actually lead us away from anarchy into order and thriving. It was given by God for opportunity so that we would all have equal opportunity to thrive and to make something of our lives. And it was given by God ultimately for safety, both at home and abroad. This was God's heart in instituting the government. And here's the argument that I want to make is that as followers of Jesus, and maybe you're here and you're just checking things out, what a super weird day for you to be here. I apologize, but we're so glad that you are here. I think that Christians have something beautiful to offer our political world today. Let me give you just some of our unique contributions that we as Christians have to offer. Number one, a vision of human dignity. Hitler called people that he didn't like useless eaters, which flies in the face of what it is to be a Christian that believes that God created all people in his image, bestowing on them value and dignity and worth. And historically, this Christian vision on human dignity 
has led for the fighting to see women and children and slaves and the poor and the elderly treated with dignity, honor, and respect. Number two, Christians have a disproportionate concern for the poor and for the vulnerable. I I don't think you can read scripture and miss God's heart disproportionately bent towards the poor and the widow and the orphan and the sojourner or what we might call the refugee. God's heart is bent towards those people. In fact, I've heard Tim Keller say, you can't have a relationship with God if you do not also have a relationship with the poor marked by generosity and compassion. If you just read through scripture, it's like having a relationship with God necessarily works itself out towards having a disproportionate care for the poor and the vulnerable. Number three, a suspicion of human nature. One of the things about Christians that is super helpful with government is that we believe that we've all been marred and affected by sin. So what that means is there's a need for checks and balances. There's a need to actually have a balance in this where uh, we realize if someone was given power, ultimately they probably wouldn't use it for good all the time, that we're corrupt and bent with sin. And then finally, number four, a priority of the other. Think about how many times Jesus is teaching love for neighbor or a welcome of the stranger and the outcast. That has something powerful and transformative to offer in a, in a political structure, those four things. So here's the first point, and I'm done. Christians should recognize and obey the government. Second point, real quickly, followers of Jesus should recognize and resist government. Give to God the things that are God's. There are times when followers of Jesus should actually resist government. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I feel like some of you have immediately turned into Pharisees, and you are now trying to trap me in my words. And so let me just say, have some grace on me. I have to be very thoughtful and careful about how I'm going to say what I'm about to say. There's a difference between obedience to the government and uncritical allegiance. There's a chasm between obedience and uncritical allegiance. Obedience does not mean that you obey uncritically all the time. Yes, we have earthly kings, but we as followers of Jesus have the king of kings. Yes, we have an earthly supreme court in the U.S., but we have a heavenly supreme court that stands above all and has the final say. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus... Our primary allegiance is not to a government. It is to King Jesus. Our pledge is not to a flag. It's to the Apostles' Creed. And we are ultimately submitted to his reign and his rule above all other earthly rules and governments. It's okay to be patriotic. Uh, The Winter Olympics are coming up. I'm so stoked about it. It's okay to cheer for America. It's okay to love the flag. It's okay to love America. You should. It's great. That's fine. It's okay to be patriotic. But there is a big, big chasm between being patriotic and having uncritical allegiance to a government or a certain political party. And as followers of Jesus, we just don't get that option because Jesus is our king. Caitlin Scheiss says it this way in a book called The Liturgy of Politics. Rather than expressing gratitude for the good gifts given to a particular nation and understanding the special connection members of that same nation share, the patriotic gospel, which is, she's saying is, is influencing us today, 
requires uncritical allegiance to one's country. If we think that our service and love to our country and to God and to his people are completely compatible, then we have confused the two or melded them completely. Remember, John Mark, the author of this gospel account, is writing these words from Jesus to a group of Christians who are secretly gathering in resistance to the Roman Empire to worship this King Jesus. Remember that Peter and Paul and many other early Christians died as enemies of the state for their peaceful, nonviolent prophetic resistance to Rome and to the worship of Caesar. So here's the the, the million-dollar question. How do we know when government is wrong and should be resisted? How do we know when we should resist the government? Well, I think here's the answer. When the government commands something that is morally wrong, we have a moral obligation to obey King Jesus. Now, there's a difference between the government asking you to do something that you don't like, like pay taxes, or doing something that you personally would prefer not to do, or even personally have a kind of conviction that, oh, I don't really. There's a difference between that and something that they ask you to do that is diametrically opposed to Jesus and his way. So, friends, if you're going to step into a moment of resistance to the government, it must be thoughtful. It must be theological. It must be patient and humble and nonviolent, and done so with the willingness to suffer gracefully whatever may come. Think of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement as, in my opinion, probably the best modern uh, description of a nonviolent, peaceful, theologically oriented, community-driven, with pastors involved, ways of resisting the government to bring about good. You think about Claire Looper, who in downtown Oklahoma City, uh, was walking into Cat's Drugstore, what is currently cam- uh, camps, I believe, and, and it was sitting with kids and they were spitting in their faces. And here they were peacefully protesting and resisting out of the heart of Jesus. And it actually led to the thriving and the flourishing of our African-American brothers and sisters in Oklahoma. That's a great example of what it looks like to resist in a peaceful way. And that leads me to the third and final thing, and then we'll be done. Followers of Jesus should live as citizens of a very different kingdom. Followers of Jesus should live as citizens of a very different kingdom. Uh, There's this really bizarre story that we read earlier together. I don't know if you caught it. In Mark 12, 18 through 27. I don't have the time to, uh, in detail, work through the story. So let me just give you the Cliff Notes version. The The ultra short version is the Sadducees approached Jesus for another round of confrontation. And the Sadducees were very, very wealthy. They were the aristocratic religious leaders of the day, primarily responsible for uh, the, the, uh, the sacrificial stuff in the temple along with the priests. And what was so crazy about them is that they only believed that the first five books of the Bible, what was called the Pentateuch, was authoritative, was really from God. So none of the rest of Scripture they believed was from God. And so as a result, they kind of did not believe, not kind of, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead because it's not really explicitly taught in their minds in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe that uh, there was life after death. So if you were a Sadducee, what you have in this world is all you have. You live here, and you enjoy it, and then you die. And this turned them, over time, into a very hedonistic group of people where it's like, hey, 
Let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Let's just enjoy this life and enjoy what we have because this is all there is. And so they think this idea of the resurrection is just plain stupid and they want to make Jesus look stupid too. So they concoct this bizarre story about a woman who is married to a man and that man dies. And in Jewish culture, God had set up a deal to where if an unmarried man, or I'm sorry, if a, if a man who dies has brothers who are unmarried, then they were called to take care of this wife, to marry her and provide for her so that her family lineage could continue. And so, so this story, they kind of concoct, it's hilarious. It's like one brother marries, he dies. The next brother marries, doesn't have any kids, he dies. The third brother marries, he dies. And after like three or four, if you're the other brothers, you're thinking, I don't know that I want to do this. Like I've seen the way that this is going. And so finally seven brothers and they all die and then she dies. And they come to Jesus and they say, hey, in the resurrection, which they don't believe, in the resurrection from the dead, who is she going to be married to? And they think this is going to stump Jesus. They think Jesus is going to be like, wow, you know what, guys? I have never thought of that. That is just, you're right. Let's just not believe in the resurrection anymore. It's stupid. And Jesus doesn't do that, obviously. What he does is he says these words in verse 24. He said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You're religious leaders. You've read your Bibles. I don't think you have. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We won't become angels. Notice Jesus doesn't say that. But we will be like angels in the sense of we will not be married in heaven. Marriage is a picture that points to Christ and his marriage to the church. And when the resurrection happens, marriage will give way to the reality of Christ and the church. My wife asked me this week, she said, is there any other way to interpret that passage? No, sorry, sweetie, there's not. There's no, like, we won't be married in heaven. Marriage is temporary. Now, some of you are really, really sad about that. Others of you are like, Praise be to God. (laughs) And if that's you, reach out to us. We want to help you. We love your marriage. I wish we could spend more time on that. But verse 28, it's 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? So he goes directly to the parts of scripture that they believe. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, quoting from Exodus, How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What he's saying is so easy to miss, but it's brilliant. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham when he was alive, or I was the God of Isaac and Jacob. He says, I am. In other words, though they've been dead for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years by this point, there's coming a day where Jesus is going to be resurrecting their bodies from the dead. And in some sense, they're actually alive with God currently as Jesus is speaking right now. He's saying, I am the God of the living. Okay, that's brilliant from Jesus. But what on earth does that have to do with this story and politics and how to relate to the government and the coming kingdom? Well, actually a lot. Here's how. Because there's a lot of talk in the church today of the danger of being a Pharisee, being legalistic, having an outward posture that looks like holiness, but inwardly your heart is broken and distorted and you really don't care about God. There's, there is a danger of being a Pharisee, but, but maybe far greater. The danger that you and I face today is not of being Pharisees. The danger that we face is Sadduceeism. 
It's treating this life as if, as if it's all that there is. That what we get is, is what is here, and we've got to make the most of it, because once we die, we die. And theologically, we may not say that we believe that, but the way that we live, it's like, I've got to get mine, and I've got to get mine now, and I've got to frantically make the most of this life, because this life is all there is. And friends, when you become that way, this world becomes far more important to you than it should, and it disorders the way that you relate to politics, and marriage, and pleasure, and parenting, and singleness, and sexuality, because there is a life that is to come. And this is just the front cover of the story. So if life is all there, if this life is all there is, you're either going to care way too much or way too little. You'll end up putting far too much stock and hope in politics, or you'll just become hopeless and careless and disenfranchised and depressed altogether. But as followers of Jesus, we know that this present life is not all there is. Jesus will return again to this earth and he will bring about the resurrection and the kingdom of God. Let's have some eschatological hope that we hold out for that day. What that means is you don't have to become too overwhelmed by what's happening in our world, and nor should we get too excited about what's happening in this world because we are citizens of a different kingdom, and that kingdom will come in fullness. So yes, you're an American, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're also a Christian. And we're first and foremost Christians, and secondly, citizens of America. First and foremost, strangers and exiles on this earth. And the more we understand that, the more we live as citizens of heaven, the better we can live as citizens of peaceful grace and love and salt and light while we live on this earth. So let me close like this. Please reject the heart posture of the Pharisees. I owe the government nothing actually give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Reject the heart posture of the Herodians. I owe the government everything, and I've got to get in bed with a certain political party and perspective and give to God what is God's. Reject the heart posture of the Sadducees. This life is all there is. I've got to enjoy it. Make the most of it. Well, make the most of it, but this life is not all there is. Resurrection is coming. And finally, embrace the heart posture of what it is to be a Christian. I belong to God. Every part of me is his. So I'm going to be engaged in politics, but I'm not going to give it my ultimate allegiance. I'm going to live like Jesus in this world. I'm going to be more concerned with the Sermon on the Mount than I am the Constitution of the United States. I'm going to live in this world as the faithful presence of Jesus, loving and blessing enemies, quick to forgive, slow to speak, quick to listen, quick to love neighbor, quick to bear burdens, concerned for the poor and the widow and the orphan, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. Let me pray for you. Would you stand? Father, help us here. Help us here. Pray that you would move and that you would work and that you would give us the grace that we need to carry out what you've called us to do. This is so complicated to walk out, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and mercy to be your unique people in this world. Help us not care too much, and help us care enough in the way that matches your heart for this world. Pray these things in your name.